All right. Well, welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. I'm Josh and glad to have Dallas on here as a guest host, but uh, really want to welcome our special guest here that we have today is uh, Dr. Raul Garcia. Raul is running for the U.S. Senate in 2024, looking to replace Maria Cantwell. And thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. So it's a pleasure to be here. Well, so first off, um, you know, I, th- I think most people know who you are, but uh, you do have a pretty remarkable background. And wondering if you can just give us the uh, high-level overview of where were you born, where did you grow up, all, all, all that. And what, what led you to uh, from there all the way to where you are today just in Washington State? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a, an exciting uh, an exciting journey. I was born in Cuba. Um, got to experience firsthand what big government is about, and I was uh, forced to be a little pine, uh, communist pioneer. Um, that's what we uh, we were called in elementary school, communist pioneers. And uh, of course, every day we would. Uh, talk badly about the United States and and how the imperialist Yankees uh, were the reason why Cuba was bad and so on and so forth. And lived there for 11 years. We managed to uh, be able to escape Cuba uh, by way of uh, luck, really. My, my mother asked to leave Cuba 12 years prior and finally was granted it because of a great family that we, uh, our family in the United States knew in Spain and they knew the ambassador to Cuba um, from Spain and well, uh, a deal was able to be made and we were able to leave. But I, <clears throat> I remember leaving Cuba and a policeman putting me in a room alone with him and asking me if I wouldn't leave, that if, if I would let my mother live, leave by herself, that they would throw a big party for me at the Pioneer Palace. <laughs> And I, I said, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving with my mother. So we went from, from Cuba to Spain, lived in Spain while the uh, Catholic Church asked the United States for political asylum for my mom and I. And uh, when that was granted, then we came to the U.S. Uh, back in 1982, uh, grew up in Miami, uh, went to the University of Miami, went to high school in Miami, and then went on to uh, New York for medical school. I spent a few years in New York, uh, medical school and practicing medicine in the state of New York. As a matter of fact, before politics, my claim to fame was this uh, reality show that we did in the Bronx, uh, Life in the ER in the Bronx, and and that was uh, a lot of fun to to do. My, um, My trip to Washington was to help start a new medical school here in Washington. I was very involved in, in medical politics, and they asked me if I would come uh, to Washington to help start the first medical school in 60 years in the Pacific Northwest. So that was a, a great um, goal. And, and to come out here, I thought, well, we're going to come out to Washington for two years because everybody knows that America runs on East Coast time. And the rest is history. You get here and you fall in love with the Pacific Northwest and you see that there's no better place. So here we are. And. I've been here now for uh, 16 plus years uh, and uh, here to stay. So that's the uh, that's the long uh, version. I did um, have the honor of working for Senator Bob Dole back in 1990. 
And that is where my love for politics uh, began. And I thought one day uh, maybe I could uh, be Bob Dole and um, and serve this country for everything is done for me because that is one thing that I am very thankful for. And well, uh, as you have it, here we are, right? We have a Senate race right in our hands to to win, and uh, our opponent is polling the lowest that she's ever polled in her political career. So we're pretty excited about 2024. Yeah, well, you you jumped right into the the second question I was going to ask, which is how you got involved in politics. But uh, a lot of people, or one of the typical questions is like, what are you going to do when you get to Washington? And I think a lot of that is um, based in some maybe a fallacy that you have a magic wand and you can go do whatever you want. Um, it doesn't quite work that way. We have a pretty uh, strict, rigid form of government that has uh, multiple layers of um, of ways to stop and prevent different priorities that people might have. But um, rather than tell us your wish list or what you're going to go in there and accomplish in your first 100 days or anything like that, what would you say just are your priorities? Like, what are the, the issues that matter most to you? Well, first of all, I'd like to think that I'm bringing to politics something different, right? A, a scientific approach. I, I've been a an emergency physician for the last 25 years, and that's how I've directed my life, um, looking at, at issues and saying, okay, what has been proven? What can we go with? And, and uh, what is the best solution? And I think that sometimes in politics, we have, what I see anyway, we have lost uh, the sense that <laughs> we're here to serve the people and to listen to to those that actually are our employers and represent them as best as possible. And I think that what we have done lately uh, is play a lot of politics and not concentrate enough on solutions. So first of all, I'd like to bring a government who listens. I like to remind people that, you know, the, the senator from the state of Washington actually represents the state of Washington. Uh, it's not someone that leaves to Washington, D.C. and and you never see for five years until they reemerge to run again. Um, you know, we, we have to have leadership in our state and we have to have someone that says, you know, this is, these are state issues, but I'm still going to talk about them because I am one of you. And I think that that is something that is lacking in that position in our state. So I'm pretty excited to bring that uh, some someone that actually represents uh, the people. And obviously, um, being an emergency physician, uh, for me, has been a microcosm of society. A lot of things happen every day in our emergency department that gives us a clear example of what's happening in the streets. Uh, drugs being a major uh, part of that, uh, which is coupled by you know, safety and crime. So that is going to be a priority. I think that uh, people of Washington that I have heard uh, running around the state for the last three and a half years uh, are concerned about their safety anywhere you go anywhere in, in any city and, and that has to be a big issue and and something that of course leads it is the open drug use that we have in our streets which leads people to have no boundaries so i'm concentrating our our, our first of the year i'm concentrating a big message against a, a killer that I've seen now like I have never seen in 25 years, which is which is fentanyl. 
fentanyl kills uh, in your first try sometimes. And it has come now to our attention that if you ever try fentanyl, your life expectancy is two years. So you're going to die. It's a matter of when. And our children are dying from this. And I think that it's time for our government to respond and respond respond uh, harshly to the people that distribute this drug. So that is one of our priorities. And then, of course, when you listen to our state and the rest of the country, for that matter, the cost of living these days is not one that we are proud of. Um, you know, a lot of families uh, find it hard to to make ends meet. Um, you know, the price of housing is astronomical. The price of education uh, is prohibitive to some families. And uh, healthcare, healthcare has become something that some families can't even afford. And that is, we're talking to about the basic need of human beings. So coming from, from that field, of course, I will have a lot to say about that. Um, but there, I think that those are, uh, for now, you know, the, the top priorities that I like to bring. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm here to talk about any subject. Well, so you mentioned fentanyl, and it's obviously a problem in our communities. And, and not just the big ones, it's in the little ones, too. Um, I know that you're a member of Congressman Newhouse's Central Washington, I believe it's called the Central Washington Fentanyl Task Force. What yep. is something that you've learned from that that you think people need to know about fentanyl and how dangerous it is? Well, um, it's a conglomeration of things because not only do I sit on that task force, task force, but I have been a very big pupil of this problem because I think it's it's bigger than people think it is. Uh, we're losing 350 people a day in America. And if you could picture a plane going down with 350 people a day, how soon before the government stops aviation altogether and says, oh, wait a minute, we have to resolve this problem before another plane goes up. And uh, I don't think that we have paid enough attention to it. And of course, it doesn't it doesn't um, help that we have free drugs and crime flowing through our borders. So uh, what about fentanyl? Fentanyl is something that is not calibrated in these labs. So one tab of fentanyl could be 25 micrograms, but it could be two milligrams and kill you immediately. So uh, a, a poor child that is suffering from a headache, a friend says, hey, you want to try this? Well, they don't know how many micrograms are in that tab. And that one tab for the first time could kill that person. And that is why it's such a, uh, a big killer and something that we need to prioritize over any other drug. So what is it about fentanyl? I mean, is it is it as you just described? Is it that we, we don't know the dosage or is it because we I, sometimes we hear these statistics or um, in the media excuse me, saying something to the, the effect of, um, you know, they, they, cover, they recovered enough fentanyl in a drug bust that could have killed the entire city of Seattle or something like that. So is it the dosage that we don't um, know in a given pill, like you said, or is there something unique about fentanyl that just makes it so deadly? Well, uh, yes, the dosage we don't know. And the fact that it's an opioid, so 
in an opioid overdose, you stop breathing, right? So th that's, that's first of all, we all have to know this, that uh, this is a drug that could make you stop breathing. And enough of it will make you stop breathing immediately. Uh, second of all, it is highly addictive. It is highly addictive, which is the reason why these labs are now lacing everything with fentanyl. So you become addicted to this, uh, to this fentanyl. And once you're addicted to this fentanyl, unfortunately, it takes a monumentous event for you to react and, and, and try to get help. You know, your brain is controlling you, telling you to lie, cheat, and steal to get the next fix. And that is what these individuals in the streets are doing. Uh, and I would say that these are the victims, right? In the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan ran a big war on drugs. And uh, he tried to eliminate the demand, right? He tried to eliminate the people that were using drugs in the street. Um, I think the better approach is to eliminate the supply and help those addicts in the street uh, get better. And if we do those things, then certainly we, we're going to uh, see the collateral uh, consequences will be less crime and, 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 and more security in our streets. Yeah, it certainly has a lot of downstream consequences. So um, related to that is also, you know, we hear a lot about a, a mental health crisis in, in America. So um, what role do you see? Because obviously, securing the border certainly a, a, a federal issue. Um, but what role do you see for the federal government in assisting in areas like like mental health or drug treatment, that sort of thing? Huge, huge role. I think that while I am not a federalist, okay, and I want to make sure that people uh, know that I am not intending to go to Washington D.C. and now federalize everything because it is so important. I actually have a fundamental belief that the bigger body of government is just there to make the smaller body succeed. So, you know, I'm in, I'm in DC to make sure that Washington state succeeds, but you know, we, um, uh, I don't know what we were doing, but we lost our federal accreditation for Western hospitals. Um, you know, this is something that we need to get back, not only mental health for our people, but mental health for the people that are in jail. Um, uh, in my experience, you know, practicing emergency medicine over the last 16 years plus here in the state of Washington, we could have a brand new mental health center in almost every city uh, to satisfy the need that we have in mental health. And this is where I differ with a lot of what our government presently is talking about you know, when it talks about the homeless and says, well, housing first. And, and uh, for me, uh, it is uh, drug rehab and mental health first, and then housing. You know, someone with a mental health condition, you give them a house, they're gonna, <laughs> they're gonna flee. Uh, they don't really want the house. And someone with a drug problem, you give them a house, and now that house has become a drug house. Uh, so, you know, uh, again, going back to my scientific approach, I would like to look at things and find the root cause of the problem, not put band-aids on problems as we usually do in this bureau large bureaucratic government that we keep building and building and building. Uh, let's find the root cause and eliminate that root 
And then you'll see how the collateral consequences are positive. I like one of our goals of this organization is conservatism and like defining what that is and like explaining it to people. So you've, you've decided to run as a Republican. So what does it mean to you or why did you decide that you were a Republican or a conservative? Like, what does that mean to you? Okay. Well, uh, (laughs) first of all, I, I had a first hand look at what communism looks like and what big government looks like. And I think the ideology of the Republican Party is to have less government, um, uh, a government that actually helps people uh, open up opportunities, not rule your life, right? You know, I I was sitting with Senator Marco Rubio and he gave me, because I have to give him credit for this, he gave me the best uh, definition of a conservative. And he said, you know, Raul, all we're doing, all we're trying to do is conserve those things that have worked for ourselves and our families throughout the years. And it's, there's nothing, I mean, nothing more than that. That is the, I mean, it's so easy. And I said, uh, I said, Senator Rubio, I'm going to use that for the rest of my life because it, 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 uh, it hits a, a good spot for me. I think it is the perfect definition of what being a conservative is. And I, I will fight for it. I will fight for all those things that I had the opportunity to succeed in America. I want my children to have that same opportunity. So I want to conserve those things that have helped us attain a little piece of the American dream. Yeah, I think I think that hits it on the head because that I think that is the definition of conservatism is sort of a deference towards the tried and true versus the new and unproven. Um, and I know there's thoughts that there's a lot of new ideas out there, but um, really looking to the past about what's worked and what got us to where we are today is, is really what conservatism is all about. But um, in switching back to uh, policy here a little bit, because this is one area that is uh, sort of a, a pet peeve of mine uh, or obsession, I guess, maybe it might be the better word is um, the national debt. So recently yeah. we hit $34 trillion and no, re- from what I can tell, no real serious attempts still to address that. Seems like we keep kicking the can down the road and waiting until that bomb actually explodes before we do something about it. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the debt? And um, one of the things that I think Republicans have often paid lip service to, in some regard, is that that we can just cut our way out of it with uh, you know foreign aid or uh, waste, fraud, and abuse or um, any of the discretionary spending, when really the big, the big ticket items there are our defense budget, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. So um, I don't want to get you in trouble by trying to get you on the record about what retirement age you think we should have or anything like that. But um, related to that, you know, we've seen the two main presidential candidates who are likely to be our next president basically saying, we can't touch entitlements, but what are your thoughts on the debt and what can we do to address that? And do you think we need to look at entitlements? First of all, I think that we need to be adults about holding the, the checking account, right? I, I think that we need to spend as much as we have. 
and, and not more. And I mean, this is every business, every person's life, uh, every, everything that we have been taught in, in finances responsibly. And one of the senators that sat down to talk to me about it, and I could, I, I could defend him here because he is a true champion of balancing the budget, is Rand Paul. And he really um, is a proven champion of it. And even with Republican topics uh, as the defense um, budget, um, he, he's, he said to me, you know, Raul, it's, it's great that we have a defense budget, but we need to be responsible about exactly what we're spending with that defense budget, we, you know, we don't have a limitless defense budget. You know, and I tend to agree with that. I think that we need to evaluate our programs and make sure that we, first of all, first the, the first round is stop waste. Those things that are being wasteful that we're paying and we're not getting a return need to go away. I mean, I am a true believer in cutting government spending over uh, the belief of our other party that believes that it's just, you know, to raise taxes so we could spend more. Um, you know, I, I do believe that that first round is the, the wasteful spending. Second round is a fine surgical removal of those programs that are not providing a good return for us, domestic or international. Uh, and then looking at entitlements, that is a that is a real difficult one because, you know, we've had them for so long that there is no generation now that did not have it, right? Yep. But but we do have to sit down and evaluate uh, how could we make it sustainable. And all ideas have to be on the table. I, I, I do have a, a, a fundamental belief that the more um, input, that you have at a table, the better the outcome is. You know, uh, it is very easy for us to sit here in our own echo chamber and find uh, solutions to everything. And then you have someone that believes completely opposite to us and they bring something that we don't have an answer to. Like, oh, well, if we would have that input at the table at the same time, we could come up with a, a better solution. So. You know, this is one that I am willing to sit at the table with with both parties and, and Congress and, and come up with a more sustainable solution than we have now, because right now it's not a sustainable solution. Yeah, well, refreshing to hear because, um, well, yeah, first off on defense, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think often, as as you said, as Republicans, I think the assumption is that we just need more defense spending and it's it's good no matter what the level is. We just need to keep adding to it. And I think the reality is like we need to look at that just as just as succinctly and, and critically as we would any other area. Of course, we want a strong national defense, but are we getting the best bang for our dollars? But um, and then, yeah, on on the entitlements, I think, yeah, absolutely. Just being open to the idea is a step in the right direction for the people that we need in uh, in the Senate, because, yeah, we, we hear people that just. Even during watching the Republican debates, it's kind of funny to hear Nikki Haley mention that, yeah, we probably do need to raise the retirement age. And then people are turning around and attacking her for it. It's like, well, what's what's your idea there? Um, so one other question I wanted to ask is, 
you know, obviously you mentioned the, uh, your opponent's, uh, polling numbers being pretty low. Um, mm-hmm. and even, even nationally, look, like the, the Biden administration is not very popular, but one headwind that I think we face as the Republican party is, you know, look, we're in a, we're in a blue state. So what are you going to do to convince the voters in King County in, in Seattle that almost reflexively vote democratic just because that's what they, that's what they've done. And that's what they've always identified themselves out. How are you going to convince them to vote for Raul Garcia? Well, uh, by having enough funds to make sure that our message gets out to everyone out there, if our message gets out to everyone out there and it's a message of building a government of solutions rather than playing politics, I think that there's a lot of people in Seattle and throughout the state that are Democrats and independents that are sick of the life that we live. And they're, we're looking for, for a candidate that actually is talking about solutions, right? You know, the pothole in the street could care less if you're a Democrat or Republican. It wants to be repaired. And I think that there's a lot of families in Seattle that I've talked to that, uh, again, safety is their number one concern. They can't have their kids go to the park without fearing that, uh, you know, they're going to be encountered by the great homeless population that we have there. And they want change and they're willing to listen. Uh, so I would like to make sure that we get our message out there to, uh, to that community. For example, our uh, campaign on putting uh, fentanyl dealers behind bars with manslaughter charges was strategically only guided towards Seattle and, and half a million views on that. So, um, you know, that, that's the kind of uh, thing that we're going to continue to do to make sure that everybody in this state hears the message. So those independents and those conservative Democrats that are not happy with their lives could see that they have another choice, not just putting a check mark by the D. Well, and so we saw Tiffany Smiley run a campaign against Patty Murray, where I think obviously successfully, Patty Murray was able to pin her, uh, pin Tiffany to, to uh, sort of, um, I guess this goes back to Project 42, I think did some polling on uh, two big issues that we realized are sort of detrimental to Republicans and conservatives running in the state of Washington, and that being the abortion issue and Donald Trump. So if what seems likely Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket. Do you see that coming into play in your race? And how do you distinguish yourself from Donald Trump, who is so po- so incredibly unpopular in the state of Washington based on all polling that's out there? And um, then how do, you, how do you control the messaging for the abortion issue so that um, your opponent doesn't paint you as extreme in the way that Patty Murray did so to, to Tiffany Smiley? Well, King Five has already uh, ran my answer to uh, to the abortion question, and uh, and I think uh, both sides have been satisfied with it. You know, I have said over and over again that you know it's a very divisive issue. Obviously, there's a lot of visceral feeling behind it, and uh, for me as a doctor and as a scientist, 
uh, if you cut religion aside and the visceral feelings behind abortion, uh, scientifically, life starts at conception. There is no argument to that. There is a cell or a zygote or a baby. This is why I have never performed an abortion myself, and it's not for me. But as a physician, I cannot get behind an abortion ban because that would bring morbidity and mortality to women, uh, which as a physician, I can't get behind. So what I want to see is abortion be rare. And how do we accomplish that? Well, we have to fortify the foster care system. We have to make it easy to adopt a baby, which is not easy in our country today. And we have to uh, support and give resources to women that are pregnant in crisis. Uh, a lot of those women uh, feel that they don't have the resources. And what, uh, what we have to understand is that the, the role of government is to educate and provide resources to open opportunities for people. And if we do that, I think that those women will choose to not have an abortion and abortion will be very rare. And that is my goal. I, I think uh, this is, we. If, if you poll the whole state, I don't think that there are many people in this state that are pro-abortion. They're, they're just pro that choice that women want to have. And I think that if you provide the right resources and education that we will see that Washington state will have a, a very rare abortion rate. And that's what I want to see. So um, I think that that's the answer. And I, and I think that we, we both uh, sides should, should uh, work together to, to that common end. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't change the views that we have on both sides, but it's something that we could compromise on. Yeah, I think the the polling nationally is is pretty clear that um, there's pretty much overwhelming support for legal abortion in the first trimester. Um, then it tapers off quite a bit in the second, and then pretty pretty pro life and and anti abortion in the third trimester. But obviously, the the Democrats are trying to frame that issue as any Republican who's pro life is just trying to have an outright abortion ban. So yeah, certainly some sort of thoughtful approach to it. Even if we were to just copy what countries in Europe were, are doing <laughs> would be um, much more pro-life than, than the current system that we have. But so yeah, the, the other part of that question, um, and again, don't want to get you in trouble <laughs> in any way, but how do you, how do you distinguish yourself from the top of the ticket? Cause if Donald Trump's on there, there's going to be some, I've, presume negative coattails but how do you stand apart and say like hey i'm i'm not donald trump and i don't reflect him because that unpopularity you i assume you don't want that uh attached to you well you know the truth of the matter is that uh if indeed the um president biden and president trump are the the nominees uh, which still there is some time to go and and uh, I think overwhelmingly what I've heard from the people is that they want something new. Uh, I know that the the uh, the latest uh, uh, polls don't show that, but what I've heard, uh, especially in Washington State, is they would love something new in leadership. And that is what I'm going to concentrate in, because the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, the presidency is four years and this office that I'm running for is six so I'm actually going to outlive uh, whatever president uh, gets elected for the next four years. So 
building this movement uh, about a government of solutions, you know, I will work with whoever gets elected, but I want this to be further than four years. I want this to be the way that government is when we finish our six years, that people concentrate more in finding solutions for our country and being American than uh, playing politics and everything is division. I mean, talk about how to bring a country down. Let's just divide every topic you could find, you know, uh, and, and you look around and that's what we're doing. Yeah, you do look around and everything is divisive and it's the left or the right. And like, where do you line up and where do you fall? What do you think is like, obviously, you've been an emergency room position, so you've seen some pretty crazy stuff because I've been in an emergency room a few times, but I couldn't imagine being there as my occupation all day, every day for several days in a row. So what is something you think that you have learned from from your experience in emergency rooms and dealing with all kinds of people that you think would be useful in Congress to help heal some of those divides? Yeah, well, a, a few things. First and most of all is that I, I have had to always accept whoever comes in that door and treat them. As a matter of fact, um, I was in New York in a trauma bay, I remember, and I had a shot policeman and a shot criminal who shot each other. And uh, my job was to save them both. It was not to judge and it was not to um, uh, bring about any conflict. It was my job was one thing was to make sure that they both survive. And and thankfully, they both did. Right. But this acceptance, I have uh, transcended to my children. You know, whoever comes in the door uh, has uh, a story, has has a family. And it, it is our job to listen uh, now. Unfortunately, over the last few years, we have now come to a point where we are accepting not only of others, <laughs> but now we're accepting of those things that are infringing upon our lives. So there is a there is something that we need to to stop. Right. If we are to build uh, a compassionate government as we want to have a compassionate government, then uh, our people shouldn't be dying in the street and infringing upon others. Uh we should have the safety of our of our citizens. So, you know, what I have learned in the emergency department is, of course, I've been trained for the last 25 years to make quick decisions um, and that have to be right 100% of the time uh, or people's lives are at stake. So uh, being decisive and things that we have to be decisive, given the opportunity to listen uh, to so many people that I have been at their bedside in their most vulnerable moments and just lending an ear. You know, when people say to me, why are you going from such a noble profession to politics? <laughs> right. And I say, well, the truth of the matter is that I don't feel that I am changing my goal of service to the community. I am changing the venue. Not only am I helping now one family or one individual, but now I'm helping a whole state and a whole country. But bringing in the same things uh, that I have learned in the emergency department, uh, to, to listen to others, to be accepting, to uh, make quick, decisive decisions, to manage uh, an emergency department, because I've been 
so so many. Uh, I've been a medical director of of a few hospitals, uh, not only the department but the hospital to be able to manage different uh, people and with different opinions, with different uh, uh, strong opinions, and and. Uh, be able to come up at the end with a solution is what I was saying before. Let's bring things to a table. Um, I always tell my wife that communication is like oxygen, only important when you don't have any. And uh, I have never uh, seen anyone complain about over-communication. Uh, well, maybe those boosters from high school that keep on selling you selling you the pancetta, right? <laughs> you know? Uh, but... Uh, that's going to be my 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 guide to come to the Senate to uh, teach my my colleagues to uh, be accepting of others to bring down uh, and have a, a more analytical approach at what is the root cause of this problem? Why are we creating so much conflict? If we eliminate this, we wouldn't have that. And making those decisions and listening to the people we represent. So I do want to ask uh, some healthcare questions because that's obviously your area of expertise. So um, even though I, I said I wasn't going to ask any magic wand type questions um, <laughs> because because <laughs> those are often futile, but what um, what should our healthcare system look like? Because you know we've we had um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare passed. You know there's one extreme says we should have a single payer and uh, the other might say, hey, we need to just get out of that business altogether and deregulate. If if you were going to propose some changes to our healthcare system, what would that look like? Well, I would bring the power back to physicians and doc and, and patients uh, instead of um, insurance companies, right? I think that our healthcare is run by insurance companies. Uh, and uh, it's in the hands of the wrong people. I'm sorry. If you're going to stop a fire, you probably want firemen to be in charge of it, right? If you want safety in the street, you probably want to include the police on this subject. Well, when it comes to healthcare, you might want to uh, include doctors and patients. And uh, I certainly will make it my business to bring back the power from insurance companies to to patients and and doctors. And one of the things that I have um talked about and this is in in the beginning stages of it is the fact that i said to you that i'm not a federalist um with maybe um three exemptions right and this being one of them i would like to break the borders of every state to make sure that every single insurance company in the country can compete for your bid as a patient so you as a patient have the right to pick the doctor that you want and have the lowest bid for your insurance. And that is an immediate way of trying to get a little power back uh, to patients, which, which they don't have now. You know, um, we have had closings of OBGYN's units throughout our state. And this is something that I will certainly do everything that I can to make sure that people have access to healthcare, especially women. Um, OBGYN centers are expensive and I understand the business side of it, but uh, you know, uh, we can't uh, 
expect women uh, that live in Packwood, for example, now they have to drive all the way to Centralia to have OBGYN care. So these are issues that I think the federal government could get in and um, supplement the state in providing um, what I said is the basic need of a human being to make sure that, that his health care is okay. I look to Switzerland as the the model that they have in Switzerland. And in Switzerland, every insurance company in the country fights for your bid. And those bids are low, boy, you know, and then everybody succeeds. You know, it's not like the insurance companies are not going to make money, uh, but they're not making it a monopoly where they could raise their rates all they want. And now they have competition to, to compete for, for that bid. So those are, Initial thoughts, I have gone into uh, talking to veterans about the VA system because it is my experience that it is uh, uh, average at best, in my experience, of the, the VA system. And we need to find solutions there. And, you know, if it was up to me, and uh, this is a very uh, big statement, every veteran um, that put their foot forward to defend this country should have the right to go to any hospital or clinic in this country that accepts Medicare dollars for free. Um, that's our veterans. I think that they should get the best care in this country for free. So um, I'm going to have various um, groups on that uh, and how do, how does that look like? But I mean, uh, the veteran affairs is a 200 billion, billion dollar operation and it is not efficient so that is something that i'm certainly going to look into again to bring back the power to the patient and whom better than those people that said hey i'm going to put my life on the line to defend the freedom of this country and i respect them more than anybody else that's yeah, certainly an area that needs attention um so yeah on on healthcare as as a system what are your thoughts on, I, I've heard some discussion about, you know, one of the problems is that everyone, not everyone, the vast majority of people have their health insurance tied to their employment. What do you think about that? Is is that something that is, I mean, it, it's reality. It just is what it is. But um, it, would it be ideal to move away from that to where people are buying their own insurance out in the market as opposed to whatever their employer has, that's what they get. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm all, I'm always going to be on the side of individual freedom, right? <laughs> uh, so if we could find, if we could define a way to have people, um, even if it's an allotment from their employer for their insurance, but they get to decide what insurance uh, they have, that would be the most ideal. And how do we, so how do we even change that? Because it seems there's there's no law that I'm aware of um, that requires companies to provide insurance. It just seems like it just got wrapped into your compensation at some point years ago. And then that just sort of snowballed into the system that we have now. But is, is there something we can realistically do to, to change that? Well, uh, we can with conscious capitalism. <laughs> Um, you know, the, the ex-owner uh, of Whole Foods wrote a, a book uh, called Conscious Capitalism and is uh, the way of capitalism, how he said he ran Whole Foods. 
where every employee loved to work for him because he not only uh, was thoughtful of them, but it was thoughtful of their families. And I think that if we have private uh, corporations that start programs where they will give uh, their employees an allotment for the employees to choose their own insurance company, you will see a lot of employees flocking to those companies. And we may have uh, the beginning of a big movement and uh, and change in in uh, the way that works. I would love to see that. Yeah, I think the companies would like that too, because a lot are self-insured and they suddenly end up with big bills uh, from year to year, just um, unexpectedly. But um, so we really want to thank you for your time. Um, direct people to go to GarciaForWa.com to, to learn more about your campaign. You can sign up for alerts and news with your campaign. Uh, you can follow Raul and his campaign on Facebook at Garcia for Wa as well. Um, any events coming up in the Columbia Basin area that we can plug? Are you going to be over in the Tri-Cities in the near future? We're going to be over in the Tri-Cities, I think, at the end of February. We have not uh, finalized that, um, but I think it's going to be in Othello, okay. uh, so a little north of Tri-Cities. Uh, but uh, please stay tuned. We'll put it up on, on our website, yes, GarciaForWa.com, and and then our Facebook and and uh, uh, X and Instagram has changed to Dr. Garcia for U.S. Senate, just so it's very clear out there what we're doing. Um, but yes, our website, GarciaForWa.com. And then we have uh, a big event uh, going, as I said, to, to Florida, uh, February 1st, with Senator Rick Scott, who has turned to be a, a great mentor. Um, we're going to have a great event down there for our campaign. Great. And on your website, I imagine that's where people can get yard signs, make contributions, that sort of thing. Yes. And I want to tell everybody, people have asked me about our signs. And if if I'm preaching an effective and efficient government, I need to have an effective and efficient campaign, right? So there was no need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in signs before the winter and then having to spend yeah. it again. That's how we... <laughs> Uh, waste people's money. So we are going to come out uh, with signs uh, as soon as March uh, sun comes up and uh, the winter is over. So we will we'll be coming out with uh, with those signs in March. So yes, go to our website and volunteer. Stay in touch with us because we're we're doing a lot of things that we're excited about, and I think that we're going to have a U.S. Senate on the Republican side this November. Well, yeah, I, I think that's smart. I've never heard that before. But last thing we need is just yard signs strewn about from the winter storms and such. But um, appreciate your time. Wish you the best of luck and uh, look forward to uh, to following your campaign and, and seeing you in the Tri-Cities and Othello and uh, in the near future. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Josh. Dallas, thank you. Appreciate you guys.